Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Warnings continue to come in from across Ontario as the triple threat of influenza, COVID-19, and RSV continue to slam the hospitals. Is it time to bring back mask mandates? Inflation made worse by Canada's low unemployment rate. How can we get Canadian labor markets rebalanced to stabilize inflation? And we cover the week in provincial politics and municipal politics with John Best from the Bay Observer. Lastly, Canadians stockpiling food as grocery prices continue to rise. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's a lot happening here, not the least of which, of course, is what's going on uh, with health care. And, uh, well, the overcrowding in Ontario hospitals is one thing. Uh, the rising number of uh, hospitalizations due to, well, stuff that we're pretty familiar with, uh, influenza, covid and respiratory diseases are causing all kinds of grief. And uh, that's spawned some discussion about whether or not there should be a mask mandate. We can get into that in just a couple of seconds. But uh, I suppose the immediate risk here is, is to the overcrowding in hospitals. Anyway, to address all these things, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Isaac Bogosh, a staff physician, a general internal medicine, and infectious disease associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. No, my pleasure. Always happy to chat. Let me ask you, first of all, about your concerns about the, the hospital overcrowding. Uh, we know that the children's hospitals and ERs are, are desperate situations right now, uh, but the overall numbers are, are, are troubling right now. now. The medical officers and even the politicians in the past have always said that, well, you know, we're going to watch that, and, and if that gets to be a precarious position, we may have to act. Are we there yet? Well, yeah, I mean, for starters, like, listen, if we go back pre-pandemic time, we've always had those conversations about the healthcare system being yeah. stretched. And, you know, every winter we talked about hallway medicine. So people listening might think, oh, you know what, it's just more of the same. But it's not. It's different now. Yes, there's crowding and we're using the same words. But if we were to quantify it, it's at a much more significant level. Like our capacity issues are com- way more um, heavily exacerbated now. And, you know, that's a factor of having... Uh, fewer people working in healthcare, staff turnover, high number of patients coming in. And, and of course, as you mentioned, the pediatric hospitals are just getting slammed right now. So, yeah, I mean, it's time to act. I think the debate is around what exactly should be done. But, yeah, it is time to act. Well, we're not going to build more hospitals right away. So we need to do something at the other end, don't we, and, and stem uh, the tide of, of people coming in, uh, which is, is going to be a, a monumental problem, I guess, at this stage, because it does pretty much dovetail into what we've talked about, about uh, taking precautions. And uh, and I know that, you know, Dr. Tam was on a national broadcast yesterday talking about whether or not there should be a mask mandate. Now, we're not there yet, according to Dr. Tam or Dr. Moore here in Ontario. Uh, but I, I guess the, the question we have to ask is, uh, you know, are we doing what we need to be doing here to try to stem that tide and to try to cut down on the number of admissions? I don't think we are uh, to the extent that we should be. And when we think about this, you think, as you sort of alluded to, short-term, medium-term, and long-term solutions. The short-term is we need to curb community transmission as much as possible to help alleviate the pressures on an overburdened healthcare system. How do you do that? It means you get mask wearing and vaccine uptake in the community. I know mandates are, are, are you know, unpopular to many, not all, but to many. And I think you can take steps before mandating it. That means sound communication in an age, language, and culturally appropriate manner through appropriate channels to reach the multicultural and multilingual populations of Ontario. That means meaningful community outreach where you work, public health works with their local networks of 
religious leaders, community leaders, uh, it, you know, political leaders, etc., to really uh, get communities on board with putting on masks. That so also means lowering barriers to mask wearing. That means masks, which are cheap, you know, getting them everywhere, putting them in schools, in sports facilities, in community centers, in religious centers. And again, if you actually do the heavy lifting and take steps to improve mask uptake, lower barriers to mask uptake, communicate about mask uptake, you'll probably see a lot more mask wearing in the province before mandating it. And of course, the other the other similar pathways with vaccination. It's not okay to say, hey, these vaccines are free and widely available, have at it. I think you need to take meaningful steps to get vaccines into arms of people by lowering barriers to vaccinations and get it, putting them back into community centers, temples, etc., to really uh, improve uptake. Um, and I think those are really meaningful steps that will help throughout the winter. And and uh, and we know there's a, a several months ahead. Pardon me for rambling on, but one other key point no, is, it's true. Yeah. you know, the longer term solution, of course, is we need more beds, we need more personnel, and we need strategies and funding, sustained funding over time to increase the capacity of the healthcare system in Ontario for the medium and long term. And you're starting to see steps toward that. But of course, that takes time. Well, it does. And I, and I know I've mentioned to our listeners here in the in the Hamilton area, I mean, you've got Hamilton Health Sciences using an old hotel downtown as an overflow for patients. Now, that used to be just for COVID patients, but they don't have any room, any beds for anybody now. So, uh, you know, just a friend of mine just had to visit somebody yesterday. So, yeah, go over to the Connaught Hotel. That's where they are. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a hospital. At least three of the floors are anyway. That, that's how dire the circumstance is. Yesterday, though, uh, doctor, when, when Dr. Kieran Moore, our, our terrorist medical officer, was talking about this, and of course, they asked him about the man and he says, look, we all know the steps we're supposed to take. And he's right. Uh, but if you look around and just, you know, spend a day looking around in, in, on your everyday routine, not much of us are, are doing that. You know, we're, I don't think we're social distancing anymore. Uh, not many of us are wearing masks. Uh, those those hand sanitizers that we used to see about every 20 feet seem to have disappeared, too. We, we've kind of let our guard down a little here, haven't we? Yeah, I, I I agree. I agree completely. And I think when we think about what is our goal, obviously the goal is reduce community burden of these infections to alleviate pressure on the healthcare system and to uh, you know reduce infections in the community. We know how we get there, and we're. I think we have to sort of take a step back and remember that we're in the business of behavioral change. We have the science. We know what works, but we're in the business of behavioral change now, and that's why it's so important to take an interdisciplinary approach to solving these issues and involve behavioral change experts and social scientists. And that's why it's important to really have the strategic communications and targeted communications uh, to uh, to the diverse populations of Ontario, rather than just have a press release at two o'clock in the afternoon saying, hey, everyone wear a mask. Like, that's just not gonna cut it. So you really need to focus on the comms and also the community outreach and the community networking to really gain community-based support uh, and community trust. And, and that's, what, that's what's key, because ultimately these are behavioral change issues, not, you know, does a mask work or will the vaccine work? We know, we know they do. We know they're helpful. They're not perfect, but they're helpful. Well, and as, as Dr. Moore mentioned, you know, the, I don't know if we want to go to social distancing, but, you know, washing hands. And these are all things, and you and I talked about this at the beginning of the pandemic. We should probably have been doing these anyway. Uh, you know, it's flu season, and you got to take precautions in situations like this. Uh, when you look at the calendar, though, it's November the 11th today. Uh, when you look at flu season, these are still early days, so there is a chance to catch this before it gets out of hand, isn't there? I agree. I think it's never too late to turn around if you're going down the wrong path, and this is a great time to turn things around and really put 
put the pedal to the metal on on programs to uh, boost uh, vaccine uptake, both for influenza and for COVID, and to uh, enable people to make smart decisions about masking. Because you're right, it's only November 11th. I just point out, of course, it's Remembrance Day, and I hope people take it obviously off topic, but important that people take an opportunity to reflect on Remembrance Day. But, you know, it mm-hmm. also means that we've still got a lot of November, December, January, February, and a bit of March where we know this is the typical season that these respiratory viruses circulate uh, more more readily in, in, uh, in Canada. Uh, so, yeah, you know, there's a long highway ahead of us. We should get on this now before things get worse. Do we have the vaccines? In other words, if, if that message gets out there, uh, we've seen the numbers, of course, with boosters, and they're, they're starting to, to, to dissipate right now, which I think is unfortunate. Uh, what's your read on the uptake on the flu shots, though? In a typical year, so pre-pandemic, we're, we're hovering around the 40% mark, which mm-hmm. is pretty abysmal, I think. I mean, uh, yeah. we know flu shots, of course, aren't perfect, but they will reduce your risk of getting the flu. And if you do get the flu, they mitigate the severity of symptoms. You know, listen, some people listening might think, oh, whatever, I'd never get the flu shot. It's just the sniffles. It's not. It's a severe infection. Anyone who's actually had true influenza knows that it it can hit you like a Mack truck. uh, And and people just get walloped with this. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's it's definitely worth preventing. Uh, So the, the flu shots, of course, are... They're not. We have to be honest. They're not perfect, but they're really good. And and between the flu shots and putting on a mask in an indoor setting and good hand hygiene, we can really mitigate the impact at an individual level and, of course, at a community level of these of these infections. I, I don't know what else to say other than I really hope we take steps to lower barriers to these vaccines, boost uptake of these vaccines, and get people to put on masks in in uh, in indoor settings and take meaningful steps to to improve this. Uh, and I think we can do, I think we can do a lot of good actually without mandates. But again, I know it's unpopular to many, but at least that word is being discussed and we have to acknowledge that that word is being discussed by senior political and senior public health leaders. Exactly. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the stay well, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. I'd love that. Have a great day. Take care. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In the throes of inflation, and uh, we're going to talk about, uh, well, trying to buy food these days and what we're doing to cope, and that's a, a pretty dire circumstance for some folks. And through it all, uh, we're watching what the uh, Bank of Canada is doing with the interest rate right, increases that have been going on for the last little while. Yesterday, the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, uh, Tip McMillan, made a, a speech up in Ottawa, and he says unemployment will rise if the country falls into recession, but he also told reporters that job losses won't reach the level seen in past economic downturns. We don't expect a large increase in unemployment uh, in the way we've seen in past recessions. We're not expecting high unemployment by historical standards. Uh, the title of the article, by the way, that covered this says, uh, we will come out of this, according to Tiff Macklin. I want to bring uh, Moshe Lander into the conversation. Moshe, of course, is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, always a pleasure, Moshe. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Uh, was, uh, was this Tiff Macklin's We Have Nothing to Fear But Fear Itself speech? Sure. Well, I mean, I like the idea that we will come out of this. What, what, what are we going to say? This is a recession that will last forever. We'll never come out of it. Of course <laughs> we're going to come out of it, right? And uh, When he's saying that we're not going to see uh, unemployment rise as high as it has in the past, that's because we're more or less at record lows right now. So even if it goes up the normal 3 to 6 percentage points, when you start from a lower base, 
you end up at a, a lower, higher number, right? Uh, that's the math I would figure on, yeah. So, the, so he's really kind of stating the obvious, isn't he? It is, but he has to state the obvious, right? This is kind of uh, 1980s-style Kremlinology, right? That if he's coming out and saying something that's going to spook the market or that's going to cause panic, he's supposed to be above that. He cannot be political. He can't be involved in those sorts of things. So, yeah, he does come out and state the obvious, but he states it in a way that's meant to soothe and calm rather than create fear and panic. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting that uh, we usually never hear from the governors of the Bank of Canada. And so the fact that he's coming out uh, is itself a sign of maybe increased transparency, uh, but also at the same time, still not saying anything. Yeah, because I, well, maybe it's because of the pushback over the last couple of weeks, because we've started to see some of the effects of the higher interest rates on our everyday lives. And let's face it, that, that does affect not just mortgages, but a lot of other things that are going on in our lives, food prices and things of this nature. And and there's, I, I guess, a lot of a lot of bad will being directed to the Bank of Canada. And I, the, the tone of the speech seemed to be, we're not bad guys. We're doing what we need to do. And I know it's going to hurt, but it's the th- it's what we have to do. That's exactly right. And it, and what's really dangerous is that a lot of that bad uh, press has been coming from politicians. And so for the better part of the last 30 years, the understanding is that the Bank of Canada is there for one mission, and that's to keep inflation low. Uh, and no politician of any party questions that mandate and the, the role of the Bank of Canada. Uh, when you now have politicians, left and right, that are coming out and questioning the integrity of the Bank of Canada... Uh, for sure, then that's giving carte blanche then to Canadians as a whole to start questioning uh, the Bank of Canada. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's now a little bit of pressure that they need to come out and be a little forceful in saying, this is not our doing, right? We are not the ones that are causing high inflation. Just take a look around the world. And Canada's actually been doing relatively better than a lot of those other countries at controlling inflation. But uh, I don't think that they're doing it for uh, self-aggrandizement or any sort of uh, you know, praise. It's just don't blame us for the the current situation the world's in. Well, there's two yeah, two elements of that. First of all, and when people complain, invariably they call their elected officials and say, "What are you going to do about it?" So they're feeling pressure. I understand that. I've been in that seat of myself many years ago. The other element, though, as you say, is is some politicians look at this as a, as a wedge issue uh, to try to take down the government or, you know, get popular support. I mean, you've got the opposition leader that says he probably banned the Bank of Canada. He doesn't believe in world markets or any of this stuff. Uh, I don't know what his rationalization is for that. But when people are ticked off about things, they, they start to gravitate towards those things. And the more that happens, the more he's going to do it, I suppose. And that's only throwing gasoline on the fire, isn't it? It is. And, and the fact that you're now seeing him come out and say things is itself inviting criticism that, wait a second, are, are you trying to influence politics? Are you trying to be political yourself? If you're responding to politicians, then are you not being political uh, in that engagement there? And I thought you're not supposed to be a part of that. So, you know, anybody who wants to criticize the Bank of Canada is now going to be even more inflamed at the idea of who are you to question me? You're not even elected. I'm the one who has to answer to, uh, you know, my local riding or to the party that I represent or so it's kind of a no-win situation for the Bank of Canada, but I think in, in assessing which one is more damaging, just staying above the fray and not commenting, or going in front of an open microphone, or I think even in the summer they were even tweeting out ideas that, hey, this isn't us. Um, I think they've decided that that's the, the least damaging role for them to play. And again, as long as you don't say anything that spooks the markets, as long as you aren't contributing to any sort of economic turbulence, 
um, then I, I guess that's maybe the safest way to go. And that's why I said that it, it, it's kind of the obvious thing that he's saying. You mentioned just a second ago, and I, I'm intrigued by, like you say, the employment numbers, because usually uh, in situations like this, as you say, there's the concern about job loss. I mean, as as, as the increases in, in interest rates continue, uh, you expect there's going to be a slowdown in production, and that usually means job loss. Since we're already starting at a pretty good level right now, is that going to be significant? So usually in a recession, you would see inflate, uh, inflation. Unemployment numbers go up, say, 3 to 6 percentage points. So if we're starting around 5.2, if we saw it go up to, say, 8%, that would be within the normal realm of things. But the interesting bit is um, we're right now in a situation where with these low unemployment numbers, there's also huge numbers of vacancies. And so Tiff Macklin himself was saying that he thinks that the likeliest outcome is that if we do go into some economic slowdown, Rather than firing workers, we're much more likely to just take down the job wanted ads. So it's possible that we might still end up with 5.2% unemployment in the middle of a recession without the 3 to 6 percentage point increase, because firms just decide that, you know what, there's no point in even filling this vacancy. And the other way that you could do it is you could say it's so difficult to find workers these days by all those job vacancies that what we're going to do with our workers is rather than fire them, we're going to say, look, here's the deal. We're not going to fire you, but we're not going to give you a raise either. So just please don't ask. I know inflation is tough, but just this is better than losing your job outright. And what we're going to do is for your frozen wages, pay you to just come to the office and we're going to do some of the grunt work. We're going to do some of the basic cleaning up that we should have done or the reorganization. Or we're going to go into that uh, room at the back that has all of the garbage and try and organize it. And that's the way that we're going to fill our time until our customers come back and, and start with order fulfillment. He, he he got into some interesting uh, possibilities, I guess, because you've you've talked to us in the past about you know how uh, uh, this works, and if we do dip into recession, this is what a recession is. And I think last conversation you and I talked about you know the official definition of a recession, you know, two negative quarters. Uh, and and he seemed to indicate yesterday that because of the stuff you've just talked about, including the employment situation, this quote unquote mild recession that we may fall into may just be two quarters of of zero flat growth. In other words, not negative, but just not growth. Uh, and, and that may be as bad as it gets. I know that may be wishful thinking, but the fact that he floated that idea means it's a possibility, I guess. Yeah, and, it, you know, it, it's it, if you only end up with a mild recession or with just a slowdown in growth, um, he, he didn't say anything at all about what comes on the other side, right? Is that going to be followed then by strong, aggressive growth, or will it be by muted growth, right? So, you know, if I offered you, say, you can have a 2% wage increase every year uh, forever, or you can have 4% in alternate years and 0% in the other alternate years. You're still averaging essentially 2%, uh, but the idea of 4 and 0 looks volatile. 2% looks nice and smooth. So maybe what we're going to head for is a very, very mild recession or a very, very brief slowdown in growth, but the growth on the other side is not going to be particularly substantial as opposed to the wild fluctuations that we've seen in the past. So not to say that the business cycle is dead it's just maybe not as volatile as it used to be and maybe that's the the new way things will go and and as you've reminded us as just we finish off our conversation here this morning maybe it's worth repeating i I, matter of fact i know it's worth repeating uh notwithstanding what some of the politicians say this is not a canadian problem this is a global problem everybody's going through this now it is and and you know you take a look at uh other rich countries take a look at their inflation numbers take a look at their gdp numbers take a look at their unemployment numbers take a look at their government debt uh to gdp numbers take a look at the size of their deficits canada is actually in really good shape and that's 
kind of saying that I guess we're like the least sick uh, of, of all of the countries out there. But that's something to hang your hat on these days, that uh, if everybody else is, is in bad shape, uh, we're at least holding up better than everybody else, which means then that when we recover, we should be first out of the gate to recovery, uh, or our recovery might be stronger than the others because we're, we're better able to withstand whatever we're going to see in 2023. It sounds like that light at the end of the tunnel that we've been talking about. Moshe, thanks so much for this. As always, have a great weekend, and we'll talk again down the road. Anytime. Take care. Take care. Moshe Landers, Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Business as usual at Queen's Park? Hardly, the way things have happened the last couple of weeks. But is there an end in sight? Ontario Premier Doug Ford now says the government has improved its offer to education workers as the two sides are returning to the negotiating table after the union called off its work walkout, of course, earlier this week. Now, Ford says these negotiations will now have a significant implication for future rounds of public sector bargaining. It will have massive impacts on broader public service salaries, especially as we continue negotiating with teachers. These impacts, they could cost tens of billions of dollars. Well, uh, they may or they may not. Uh, That's the Premier's take on this. I'm sure the union has another side to this. Uh, To talk about this and lots of other stuff going on politically, uh, especially on the provincial level, please to welcome back uh, John Best, of course, the publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, thanks so much for the time on a very busy day. Glad you could join us today. Good to be with you, Bill. I want to just go back and uh, the the Premier's comments here. Uh, These negotiations will have a significant implication for future rounds of public sector bargaining. Uh, Is the implied message there to the other unions that if you guys don't comply and play ball with us, we're just going to bring the hammer down on you? I'm not sure that's exactly what he's doing because he, let's face it, he got burned pretty pretty good uh, last weekend with the uh, imposition of the the contract and the notwithstanding clause. So I think, you know, he's probably pulled back from that, although I'm, I'm not suggesting he wouldn't it's not possible that he'll do it. I think what he's trying to do is uh, it's a little bit talking over the heads of the unions to the public. Um, when when you and I discussed this uh, earlier, um, you know, I, I think we agreed that the what he was trying to do with this legislation uh, was, you know, send a warning to the entire public sector mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, we just couldn't uh, we couldn't let the um the education worker settlement which clearly called for something more than you know the normal one or two percent couldn't let that be a template for the other uh, unions so he's made the point the question is uh, now they have to get to the table and let's see what happens uh, you know the good news is it's not really the government but uh, our one strike with the go bus drivers looks like it's uh, settled now so there seems to be a little better climate. Uh, at least the two sides have agreed to stop negotiating through the media. But, you know, I, I think he's he's really on a bit of a tightrope because there's uh, the, the demands on the government for money are just incredible right now. You've got uh, John Tory uh, today saying that he needs $800 million And uh, Mike Zagarek uh, was briefing our new council uh, earlier this week and He's looking for $23 million and, and it's it's all money that was coming to the municipal governments through uh, the COVID uh, compensation that's now dried up. So there, there's a lot of financial challenges facing both the provincial and the municipal governments right now. Well, and just a postscript to that, uh, you know, here's a spoiler alert, Mayor Tory. They're not going to get it. 
Uh, not that much anyway. I mean, because as you say, no, I know they, they ran a surplus, uh, surprisingly, because of uh, the, you know, the inflation and the, and the tax increases, et cetera. Uh, but that's one-time money. And these guys are looking for a, a, a wad of money here in Hamilton, London. I mean, every city is going to be in the same boat these days. And uh, they're going to say the cupboard is bare, and which is one of the reasons why I guess these upcoming negotiations are going to be pretty tough. Uh, it's it's interesting to see, you know, at, at the beginning of this, before the strike is actually called, and I, I found it interesting, by the way, that Ford still justifies the using the notwithstanding clause. He said it was the only thing we could do to re- get, you know, to stop the strike. The strike was only a day old at that point, so <laughs> you know, just a second. But be that as it might, uh, they tried, I think, to rally public support behind the government as opposed to the workers. That didn't work. Uh, but traditionally, uh, when they're t- talking about the teachers, it seems to be a different dynamic. I mean, there's there's some people that just have this idea that the, well, the teachers are the bad guys. They're they're the ones that are making a hundred grand a year. They get all summer off, and what do they need more money for? And I, I don't know if they're going to play that card, but every other government has, and I wouldn't be surprised if they did when these negotiations start to heat up. Well, he's already playing it. Uh, when when he was uh, holding his news conferences earlier this week, he, you know, having backed down a bit on the on the legislative side, he. He more than once referred to the fact that the teachers were making a hundred thousand a year. He quoted the number, and so uh, clearly that's what's on his mind. And uh, I mean, he is right in that clip you played. If if uh, if he has to come through with with big wage settlements for the entire public service that are up for renewal, uh, it, it could be tens of billions of dollars. And Frankly, uh, you know, the economy is improving somewhat and, and government revenues have improved somewhat, but not enough to cover a, a, a huge increase like that. And, and I think it will be different with the teachers in terms of the public uh, perception if there, if there was any kind of a walkout there. I, I think people do look at 100000 a year and, and think that, you know, that's probably more than most of the people I know are getting. And, you know, I, I don't think it'll be the same as the as the QP workers. And by the way, before we get into that debate, and you're right, I think it is inevitable. I can see it on the horizon now. Uh, not every teacher makes 100 grand, but but that's the number they tend to throw around. Uh, just they like get there. You know, yeah, they, they will with the number of years service. Uh, so, I mean, there's going to be a lot of, you know, number crunching going on on both sides when that starts. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because they're in the early days of negotiations. But on the other hand, though, John, just to wrap up that part of the conversation, uh, you got to figure the elementary school teachers union and the secondary school teachers union, uh, they're not oblivious to what just happened this week. Uh, so there's got to be a, at least a, a mindset there that, look, at, if they if they start playing hardball with us, they're bluffing because they always back down, and they will this time too. I mean, that might be one of the takeaways here, which is only going to exacerbate, I guess, the the, the stuff going around the, the bargaining table. Yeah, exactly. It, it's um, I I can't remember a time when um, you know public sector uh, negotiations were as dicey as they are right now, and it, it comes at a time when we're trying to dig out from the pandemic. It's uh, uh, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a, a very challenging term for Mr. Ford and. Frankly, I think it's going to be a very challenging term for our municipal uh, government as well. Well, let me dovetail from that right into one of the big issues that they're going to have to be dealing with right now, and uh, especially the Hamilton Council, but other councils as well, is uh, the Ford government announcement of the incursions into the Greenbelt. Uh, and I'll start this off with the, this is a, a quote from a Housing Minister and Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark, uh, February 2021. 
And here's the quote. I want to be clear, we will not in any way entertain any proposal that will move lands in the Greenbelt or open the Greenbelt lands to any kind of development. That was Steve Clark in 2021. Uh, Steve Clark in uh, 2022 is simply saying, yeah, well, we need housing and we've got to go in there. Uh, and this, this is going to be on the government. Uh, a number of people are outraged by this. Uh, and when the new councils get sworn in, uh, in just, just a couple of days, this has got to be one of the first things on their plate. It is, and uh, you can certainly see it here in Hamilton. A lot of pushback, a lot of uh, a lot of outrage against uh, what he's obviously uh, planning on doing. And um, you know, I I wonder whether if if we hadn't taken such an absolute position a year ago when we when we froze the boundary, if you know staff presented what they thought was um, a, you know a really tough to achieve goal, which still involved opening up about 1,300 hectares. And uh, that, that was just completely shot down in the political climate of the day. Um, so, you know, Clark comes back and, and actually opens up more like 2,000 hectares. So he not only has he reversed the, the boundary freeze, but he's opened up more space. Uh, and, and this is property that has always been for you know, at least 10 years or 15 years. This is land that was always looked at as, as where Hamilton was going to expand. Some of it is not in the green belt. Uh, some of it is, uh, but, but certainly Clark's put himself in a, in a, well, let's face it. I mean, how many times have we seen somebody in the political realm have to completely reverse what they, what they were saying, but this one looks kind of egregious really. And they're talking about replacing more than they're taking out by, uh, some and it's always kind of vague. I've been trying to find out exactly where these lands they're talking about the Paris Moraine or whatever uh, the, this uh, land that's going to be put back to replace the the green belt that's that's going to be allowed to develop. You know, I, I guess the question is, it's probably land that that has no hope whatever because of the contours and river valleys and so on uh, that it probably would have never been developed anyway. Yeah, I, I, one of the critics suggesting in a way, you know, I actually she lived in East York and, and that they're being impacted by this too in Toronto and said, you know, so you're going to take this away and replace it with stuff that's about a three hour drive from here. How's that going to benefit me? Uh, you know, so much for the green belt. So they're, they're going to have a fight on their hands here municipally. And there's going to be some, we've already heard some comments uh, from the, the new council members, some of the newer, newer council members, John, uh, that are talking about things like civil disobedience and, well, we're not going to process those applications. Um, I, I don't know how far they're going to get with that. Uh, the, the government doesn't seem to have much tolerance for that, that sort of stuff, but uh, you know, I'm not suggesting you simply capitulate, but at the same time, uh, I would hope that uh, some cooler heads prevail on city council and look at a pragmatic approach to this. Well, the the other uh, difficulty, uh, because I, I did hear Councillor Danko talking about not servicing the land, there were uh, there, there's been significant trunk sewers built on the mountain, financed with development charges uh, that were that were built years ago in. Uh, anticipation of the expansion that that it now is being put back on the table. If uh, that development didn't take place, that that's that sunk money uh, in uh, infrastructure that isn't really needed. And uh, I, I talked to someone in the building industry this week who said that money would probably have to go back uh, to the development community. They paid for it. It wasn't paid for out of tax money. It was paid for out of the development charges fund. 
which is, is ponied up by the development industry. So you could have an interesting situation there if, if those uh, infrastructure, uh, mainly sewer and water, uh, if, if those were made redundant uh, in some way, uh, there might have to be, I, I heard a figure in the area of $100 million in, in these sunk assets. So that, that's just another wrinkle to this uh, complicated issue. I know we're just about out of time, but I, I I just hope that this council is a little smarter about doing things like this and being confrontational. Because what councils have done in the past, John, is is when they see an issue like this where they, they really can't win, uh, they try to fight the good fight knowing they're going to lose. Uh, the development community or whoever's got an application for it ends up going to the land tribunal. They win 97% of the time when they do, uh, and it costs the city. Usually they get a lot of costs at the same time. But they can still go back to their constituents and say, well, I tried. I tried. Yeah, but it cost you a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And that's our money. Uh, that's like I say, I, I'm hoping there's a lot more pragmatism here than than, than showboating. And I, I'm not so sure I've seen any evidence that there will be. But we can always hope, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, I know, you know, people want to make the developer the bad guy. And, and let's face it, there's a lot of money in development. You don't see too many developers driving Volkswagens. But. What, if you make it all about the developers, what you're missing is demand. Uh, you don't see young couples frog-marched into these houses at the point of a gun. They usually have a smile on their face. And if you deal with it strictly from the standpoint of, you know, Doug's developer friends and all of that, I mean, those are great lines for the media, but it doesn't get to the point that people want houses. It's, there's demand out there. And, uh, you know, uh, these kind of draconian solutions like we had here in Hamilton, they don't get at that at all. Well, it's going to be interesting to see, because uh, I know the, the rhetoric will start as soon as they, uh, they, they, get, they get sworn in. But it's going to be fascinating to see just how these councils are going to react, not just Hamilton, but the other places that are going to be impacted by this as well. John, as always, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer, with his look at what's going on, well, municipally and provincially, of course, because they're so tied at the hip these days with what's happening. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, something else. Well, speaking of Greenbelt and food production, we're in a, a bit of a grunch right now because, uh, let's face it, with inflation being what it is at almost 7% still, uh, we've seen a rise in grocery prices, uh, and it's been problematic for uh, many of us. Uh, surveys recently done right now indicate that Canadians are changing their habits uh, because of what's going on at the grocery store and sticker shock, I guess, with an awful lot of the uh, the prices that we've seen. And uh, it's it's caused some changes, some significant changes, and in many cases, necessary changes. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Janet Music. Janet is a research program coordinator at AgriFood Analytics Lab. Uh, Janet, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Good morning. The first and foremost, the, the survey that was done here uh, by Nanos Research on behalf of CTV News essentially says uh, higher prices have had an impact on us. Uh, we're, we're changing not just what we buy, but uh, but how much we buy. Uh, and it's, it's, it's having a significant impact on family budgets, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, food is one of those things you just can't really forego or, or switch out. You know, maybe you can forego getting a new car or, or not getting the latest version of the iPhone, but we all have to eat, right? And so, you know, when you have high fixed costs like your rent um, and, and things like that, you know, those tend to get paid first and food is often in the middle of the pack really. And so it really impacts the quality and the amount of food that you can buy. And, and people I think are really 
you know, this has been going on now for, you know, at least 18 months. And I think people are starting to get, you know, very um, concerned and alarmed about, you know, the year to come. Well, it's amazing to see, according to the Nanos research here, how we are responding to it. One of them seems to be, I guess, pretty obvious. And, and maybe the first uh, option that many of us would do is we're buying less expensive food. Uh, you know, maybe maybe if you you like beef, for instance, you're not buying a high-end steak, uh, uh, you know, things of that nature. Maybe you're buying the no-name brand of vegetables, et cetera. We've, we've had to, to accommodate this high rise in prices, haven't we? We have, yes. And, you know, meat is an interesting example because it's often the most expensive item in the grocery cart, right? So, you know, when you're going in to buy meat, just even for yourself, you know you're going to be spending a chunk of change on that item. And, and there are less expensive cuts, you're right. But in terms of, you know, canned goods and pro, uh, produce, you know, those no-name or house brands for the different retailers in the country, they're just as nutritious and equal quality. And so that's really what is of concern probably to a lot of, uh, you know, experts and healthcare professionals is that does buying less expensive food mean we're not getting our nutritional daily intake? Possibly, but switching to, you know, no name or brand uh, house brands, we're not foregoing, you know, quality. It, it really is individual tastes. And oftentimes those foods are, are Canadian supplied and or you know manufactured here or produced here in Canada. So, you know, it's 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 an okay bargain to make with yourself when it comes to the grocery item. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that point because I've seen that uh, when I've been in the grocery store, I see a lot more people that are reading labels now. You know, where is this from? When it comes to produce, especially, of course. But even even you write some of the other products. You know, is this is this Canadian? Is this local? Even uh, okay, I'm going to have to spend money on this, but I want to make sure that I'm I'm keeping the money here in this economy. That's right, and you know, we've been hearing a lot of kind of rumors or whispers coming that you know the recession is going to hit us next year and and i think a lot of people don't really know what that looks like and it causes a lot of concern and and people we saw this in 2020 when the pandemic hit you know people started stockpiling food because of you know the uncertainty of what was going to happen to the supply chain and and the supply chain for food really showed itself to be quite robust you know there were empty shelves but by and large, we didn't have to forego our favorite foods for very long, if at all. And so I think, you know, people are concerned with, you know, what's going to come if the recession hits, you know, food is already expensive, my job might be precarious, you know, maybe I should start collecting some of these canned goods or some of these longer lasting food items, just in case. And, you know, that is really, you know, concerning, I think, for people who, are you know buying food in general so you know i think that's something that the government should really be talking about to you know alleviate fears for people because this is a strange kind of reaction to food prices well and as we found out i'm glad you were you know as a reference point talked about the early days of the pandemic when yeah you're right there were empty shelves and there was a lot of, of stockpiling and hoarding that was going on uh, but we found out later on a lot of those empty shelves were because of uh, they couldn't get the goods to market, uh, you know, because of COVID and you know, 
truckers were having some concern, warehouses were having uh, outbreaks, et cetera, like that. And, and that it's still there. I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, there's still some concerns about COVID and other things, but we've learned to accommodate that. And supply chains issues that were drastic at that point seem to have alleviated a lot of that pressure. So the stuff will get there. As a friend of mine who's been doing trucking for the longest time says, we'll get it there. It may be the next day instead of the day you expected it, but it'll get there. So the idea of hoarding and stockpiling right now, I, at this point, is, is unnecessary, I would think. Yeah, and I, I don't think the stockpiling is a reaction to the supply chain fears. I think it's really a reaction to, you know, household budgeting fears for the coming year. Yeah. Because, you know, already we're seeing that a huge chunk of our discretionary spending is going towards food. And, you know, the exchange rate uh, is not great uh, for some of our trading partners, especially for the states. And, and unfortunately, the winter months mean that a lot of our food is imported into Canada, especially produce and, and perishable items. And so I think, you know, if you're buying frozen vegetables or canned vegetables, you can kind of stockpile them for a while. Um, but really, I don't think this is a fear generated by supply chain uncertainty, but more general uh, economic uncertainty for individual households. The other element to this, this used to be a big thing back when we've had a couple of recessions in the past. Uh, coupons, uh, using coupons, uh, looking for, you know, those those sorts of things. Uh, and I'm seeing more and more of that. I, I related the story of the last Tiger Cat game, which was a couple of weeks ago now, Tim Hortons Field waiting for the kickoff i looked over the people that said across the aisle from me she's reading the the, the safeway flyer uh, obviously looking looking for deals i guess they're going shopping after the football game but you you they're being cognizant of that right now is there a deal here you know what's on sale this week you know is there a coupon that'll get me 10 percent off uh even if you you didn't want to do that stuff in the past a lot of people are starting to get into that now that's right and 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 everything old is kind of new again right you know i remember my grandmother clipping coupons and reading mm -hmm. the flyers in comparison and you know that's not something that i ever did but now you know you're kind of forced to do that if you really want to stretch those grocery dollars and and in fact it's actually a quite a good way to do that and you know the internet like apps like flip for example, will allow you to kind of comparison shop without even leaving your home, which is excellent. But, you know, I think by and large, people are really suspicious of retailers right now because it feels like they're reaping kind of the rewards of high inflation, whether or not that's true. And people are having to spend a lot of time and not just go, you know, on a Saturday morning and do their weekly shop, but comparison shop, go to more than more than one store and really keep an eye on the food that they need to take home. And it's become a lot more work, I think, than it was pre-pandemic days. What about gender? As you look at some of these numbers about who's doing what, and I confess, I've, I've had this admission before. I used to just walk in the store and said, oh, I need bread. I go get the bread. I need cereal, whatever it is. I don't, I, I, I usually didn't even look at price and uh, I, I know it's a factor, but I just figure, okay, I got one I need. And okay. And I move on. Uh, everybody's looking at prices right now and just saying, oh, wait, wait a second here. Maybe that one is less expensive. Uh, we're being smarter about this, but a lot of men I knew were just like me that didn't much care about that sort of stuff. You know, you get home and say, well, how much was the, the hamburger? I don't know. There's the hamburger. I don't know how much it cost. Now we're paying attention to that sort of thing. But uh, is it a gender thing? Are, are women more conscientious about price? I think there's a couple of things happening here. You know, 
women, you know, could be single mothers. And so they tend to be the head of single income households. And so price is really the determinant of the type of food that they can buy. And, you know, traditionally, women are really, uh, you know, managers of household food budgets, right? They tend to, you know, even though we, we have kind of both partners out in the workforce, it still tends to be female dominated room, the kitchen. So women tend to be more tuned into this thing because they tend to be doing the cooking a lot more. So, Mm. you know, we could be just seeing some holdovers of these traditional roles that, you know, men and women play in the household, you know, and, and also women tend not to earn as much money as men. And so they're really price conscious. So I think what we're seeing is just a little bit of those leftovers that we just haven't corrected for in terms of gender equality, but also, you know, if anybody, regardless of your gender, if you're a single income household, price is going to be the main determinant of the type of food you buy. So, you know, I think what we're really seeing is stress uh, at the household budget level, which is a bit concerning. I got a minute left here, but there's one other element from the Nanos poll that I wanted you to comment on. Uh, a number of people, and I think an, an alarming number of people, are just saying they're eating less. Uh, maybe only one, two meals a day, as opposed to what they used to do in the past. Uh, I, I understand the, 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 you know, the economic implications of that, but there, there's a health issue there that we need to be cognizant of too, isn't there? That's right. And we did a recent survey, our lab did, you know, I think in September and and seven to eight percent are skipping meals as opposed to just eating less food at meals. And that's that could be, you know, a real determinant of health for a lot of people because, you know, they're not making their nutritional daily intake for calories or for important vitamins and minerals. And so this could have far reaching consequences for stresses on the healthcare system that we're just, we're not making that connection between food prices and, and healthcare, but we really should because food or, or nutritional intake is one of those things that can make or break you in terms of your overall health. And, and that's why food prices are so important to to keep, you know, at a reasonable level so that everybody has access to, you know, safe, reliable and nutritious food. Absolutely. Janet, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator, of course, at AgriFood Analytics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.